All right. Well, are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? It's a, it's a great thing. Let's all stand up, and uh, we'll have an opening prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, Jesus, with thankful hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you are a good God. Thank you, Lord, um, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. And, Lord, because of that, um, we can live in relationship with you and God we can you've redeemed us God as the song was just playing Lord that um, because of the love of God that you have the love of Jesus you have redeemed us and Lord you are worthy to be praised every day Lord with everything that we do Lord you are so worthy and I thank you for that Lord thank you for each one that's here this morning just thank you for the privilege it is to gather together in the name of Jesus and to lift up your name to praise you to glorify you Lord and I just pray that that God you would um, just fill this place with your presence God and I pray that you would um, draw us to you I pray that you would bring repentant repentance to unrepentant hearts Lord that you would bring a revival to hearts who are dry and, and in need of you Lord God, I pray that just the river of life would just flow uh, through here and that everyone would drink and be refreshed. Thank you for your goodness in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the cross, Lord. 
Yes, Lord, you are truly worthy of all glory, of all honor. Lord, you took the lowest of the lowest position that you could. You gave your life, your innocent, precious blood you shed for us. While we were hostile against you, Lord, you still loved us. And you are so worthy to be praised. I'd like to open it up this morning. Uh, at any time during this um, part of our service, if you have a testimony, uh, anything the Lord's doing in your life, feel free to share. Um, it's not only about singing songs, but also about sharing the word of our testimony, right? This morning is a little bit bittersweet for us um, because uh, Jason and Heidi, as most of you know, are going to be moving to Michigan. And um, so this is the last time that we get to sing together like this. No, it's not. I mean, we have all eternity. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <Yeah. laughs> um, but. Uh, I just was thinking this morning and this week of the faithfulness of God and how um, he just brought you, Jason, at a really um, the perfect time. Um, and thank you so much for coming and for sharing your gifts and just leading us in worship and the friend that you, um, you have been to Carrie and I and just um, we're really going to miss you. But God is faithful, and he, I know he will lead you guys, and he will continue to lead us. Um, and I know that there are good things in store for all of us. And um, we definitely look forward to the day that we'll all be home and um, be singing around the throne. But, yeah. Thank you, Soretta. It's It's been a, a real joy and honor to spend the last three years here fellowshipping with you all and, and uh, all the memories. It'll always be, it'll always be uh, home here for me and uh, look forward to coming and visiting and, and uh, all that. All right, you're worthy of my praise. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. I will worship with all of my heart. Yeah. 
worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. Amen. Let's give the Lord a clap offering of praise. Silence the roaring. 
Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory and grace Turn your eyes to the hillside Where justice and mercy embrace There the Son of God gave His life for us And our measureless debt was
Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? could see it all made new It's all creation groaning It is Is a new creation coming It is Is the glory of the Lord to be life within our midst It is Remind ourselves of this. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the steel and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David through. the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is 
have one person that's been here. I got to pick on somebody. What's God been doing in your life this weekend, or what's what's um, just a way that He has made Himself known to you, or something that you've learned? Uh, just like to open it up a minute. Well, I, they are a quiet bunch. All right, I won't drag the silence out any longer. Do one more song called Here is Love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the Shed for us His precious blood Who His love will not remember Who can cease to sing His praise He can never be forgotten Throughout heaven's eternal days On the of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy, flowed a vast and gracious tide, grace and love like mighty rivers, poured in
Amen. He is worthy, isn't he? He is worthy of everything he accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. And one day, though we see through a glass darkly now, one day we'll see him face to face. And I don't know what you're going to see when you look in his face. But I believe with all my heart, the one thing I will see is his worthiness. He is worthy. I just want to take a moment to bless all of you youth, young adults who have come, traveled from your different home places to spend this weekend with us. Thank you. Thank you for those of you also locally who have taken off of work and just taken this time out to spend time together in his word, in fellowship, in fun, and games. I often, um, when I get alone with the Lord, especially at times like this, the Lord reminds me that most of his awesome works that he's doing at a weekend like this are hidden in the hearts and souls of human bodies. We're not able to put them in the words. Maybe that's why you're so quiet. I don't know. I'm a bit more bubbly than that, as Roy likes to say, and that's okay. Uh, Some of you are not quite like that, and that's okay too. But I believe with all my heart that God was at work among us. And he's doing a work of love in every one of our hearts This weekend, through the power of His Word and His Holy Spirit, ministering that to us as a life-giving Word that you will experience in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now, as you come with your children before the Lord, or your life and your wife or your husband, the Lord will remind you of a deep work that He began in your heart that he did this weekend. Brother Roy and I were sharing about that in our own lives this morning as we were praying together and just reflecting on the preciousness of 20, 30 years ago of a work that God was doing in our hearts that today yet is a treasure with Jesus. Before I give the time over to Brother Roy to share the word with us, there's one more question uh, for those of you who weren't a part of our uh, youth retreat conference. We had a time of question and answer session where uh, the youth, young adults were able to ask us questions, those of us who taught the word, Brother Lee, Roy, and I. And there was one question that, that we only got this morning. I apologize if you put it in there and we missed it, but I didn't want to miss it for those whoever wrote it. It's anonymous. But I wanted to answer it for you. Uh, to the best that God has given me the wisdom to answer it in my own life. Here's the question. What do you do when you are already saved, but you don't feel it? On you just, or you just have a hard time praying. Or... You just feel like you aren't doing things right. 
So the question again is, what do you do when you're already saved but you don't feel it? You have a hard time praying and you don't feel like you're doing things right. Anybody identify with that feeling? Uh, come on, all of you can raise your hands. You know exactly what that feels like. We all do. So whoever wrote the question, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. Then, he or she continues, I feel like I'm not close to God because I'm trying, but I am trying to be. So how do I get closer to God? And when you asked the last part of that question, my mind immediately went to James chapter 4. And I'll share with you my own personal experience in my own wrestling with my feelings and my desire to draw closer to Him. First of all, I want to encourage you with this. God is not a feeling. God is not a feeling. God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said in John 4. God is a spirit. He is not a feeling. However... God has feelings. He expresses it all throughout His Word. From the book of Genesis, when He first created things, the world, He said, and God looked on it, and He had a feeling about His creation. What kind of feeling did He have about it? Someone tell me. It was good. He had a good feeling about what He did. And He said so. God has feelings. And Jesus, as He walked as a man on the earth, expressed His feelings quite freely. He was weary, and He sat at the well. He was thirsty as He hung on the cross. He felt compassion on the multitude. It speaks of his feelings. He stood at Lazarus' grave and he wept because he loved him. Jesus expressed his feelings, but that's not what guided his deeds and his words. In the middle of his feelings, he expressed his faith in his Father in heaven. As he stood there and wept over Lazarus' grave, he prayed, Father, I know, I know. And so he obeyed his heavenly Father because of what he knew about his Father. And he commanded Lazarus to come forth. In Revelation, it tells us that at the end of the day, we're all going to be judged by two things, not three. Two, the things we said and the things we did, not how we felt. Nowhere does the Word of God, whether through the prophets or Jesus or the epistles, ever say that we are judged by our feelings. We are judged by what we say and by what we do. So never forget that young people, the devil would like to distract us and convince us 
And often he influences our words and actions by how he can make us feel. And so he controls our tongue and he controls our hands and feet and our eyes and ears to obey our feelings. And he can influence our feelings mightily. He has that ability. He can make you feel completely depressed. He can make you feel happy when you sin. He can make you feel bored when you read the Bible. He can make you feel sleepy when you pray. He can make you feel high when you're on drugs. He can make you feel excited when you make a lot of money. Oh, the devil can make you feel a lot. And if you are controlled by your feelings in your relationship to God, you'll be controlled by the devil. The Holy Spirit does not lead us like that. The Holy Spirit leads us, as 1 Peter 1 says, as obedient children. As Romans 1 says, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is given to us for the obedience of faith. His word, His written word, spoken into my heart, through my conscience, through the Holy Spirit, guides me into all truth. His written word, spoken through the Holy Spirit, whether I've read it or not, it's there, and many times... I've read so many stories, and it's happened in my own life, that the Holy Spirit spoke strongly to me, and I knew it was a conviction from God, not a feeling I had. But I didn't know that it was written in His Word. But as I sought Him about it, because I didn't want to just act on my feeling, and I wasn't sure, was it a feeling, or is this actually the Holy Spirit? And so I sought His Word, and I said, Lord, show me, and there it was, right there in front of me, His written Word. And that anchored my soul. It's not a feeling. It's the Holy Spirit. And I really believe, dear young people, Roy and I, as we were praying, we talked about this. And this is maybe a, a bit of a generational thing, but I don't care. I want to pass this down to you. It's an observation that I have observed and many others about our generation. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking about the, gen the time in which we live. We live in a time where the Word of God is silent. You know why? It's right there. That's why. It's not in my hand open in front of my eyes. And even when I pray, it stays there. I pray my own feelings. I pray my own thoughts. I pray my own fears. I pray my own wants. I pray my own desires. That stays closed and on my shelf. So we live in a generation where we live by our feelings and by our smartphones. Social media is killing more young people today than anything else. Did you know that? I read that somewhere. Social media is causing more suicide among you teenagers than anything else in our generation. Wow. 
good riddance. But the reason that's controlling you is because this is closed on your shelf. We have, how many Bibles do you have in your house? Can you count them? I can't. I don't know how many I have. I know I have a lot. But Colossians 3 has a word for us. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, abundantly. Let it dwell within you. That's our lack. That's our lack of being confused by emotions and feelings. That's what causes most of our struggle. Our faith has no anchor. The word of God. And so, this becomes our problem in James chapter 4. Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures? You're going to read a handful of sources of reasons of why we don't draw near to God. I'm not talking about your feelings. I'm talking about your words and your actions are not Christ-like Here are the five reasons that the Holy Spirit has told us is our problem. Number one, our pleasures. Your pleasures is one of your besetting sins that causes you to be distracted from this and keeps it closed on your shelf or your nightstand. Number two, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder and you're envious. This is written by, to a church, by the way, not to the world, to Christians. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel because your pleasures. You know one thing pleasures always do? They make you jealous and envy others. You never have enough. And someone always has it better than you. And even in sports, someone's always outdoing you and you become jealous. And so you fight. You quarrel. And you murder in your heart. You hate your brother. You speak words of hate. And... Oh, but you ask. You ask and do not receive, verse 3. Because you ask with wrong motives. Number, number one is your pleasures. That's our problem. Number two is we have wrong motives. The motive for my praying is, give me, Lord. Give me so I can be, so I can do, so I can have, so I can feel. Let me ask you, why are you asking for feelings? When God doesn't have any word about your feelings, except that you should bring every thought captive under the obedience of Jesus Christ. Because thoughts are feelings. Feelings produce thoughts. Wrong motives. And the wrong motive is so that I may spend it on my pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. 
the third problem we begin to have is our friendships. We want, we ask God, but we are not willing to become the friend of God. Oh, sure, God, we want you to be one of my friends. But I also want all my other friends. Pretty equal. I'll spend as much time or much more time with my friends on social media than I do with this friend. And so I'm much more influenced with my friends and what they're saying and liking than the one true friend who's calling me into that deepest friendship that separates him from all my other friends. Friendship. Pleasure. Wrong motives. Friendship. Do you not know? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The fourth issue is pride. You know how pride is manifested? In my own life, and how I've seen in most others, pride is manifested. The most sneaky thing about pride is that it's blinding. I'm not like that. I can have all my friends on social media and the Bible too. I'm not like that, God. I don't fight. Have you parents ever broken up a fight with your kids and said, why are we fighting? And the first answer is, we're not fighting. I'm not fighting, Dad. He's fighting. He hit me. I'm not... Two, two seconds ago, they were yelling at each other and hitting each other, but the one says, I'm not fighting. It's all him. That's enough. I'm not like that, Lord. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like this other guy praying. I fast and pray. I tithe. I come to church twice a week. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like him. I'm not a druggie. I'm not. I'm not. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that. Well, you just missed the grace of God. And now instead of God supporting you and encouraging you, he himself has become your fight. He's fighting against you. He's opposing you. Now your fight isn't with others. It's with God himself. Because you don't believe you need this word. It's not your problem. That's not your problem. These five things, are you have no problem with that at all. That's not you. Pride. And the answer to that 
Verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know what I found in my own life? That in my pride, I can yell at Satan. I can, I can tell Satan to get out of my heart. I can tell, I can pray powerful emotional prayers to command the devils. And yet they stay there. And I can even really work up a feeling like, yeah, I'm going to fight the devil. But what the Holy Spirit is saying, the only one true way to fight Satan and overcome him is if you and I submit, therefore, to God. That is resisting the devil. You want to quiet the devil's voice in your life? Come hear the Lord. His written word. Come with a heart to submit to what you read. To learn to love. To hide his word in your heart. And the devil will just flee. He'll be gone. You don't have to yell at him. You don't have to command him. You don't have to renounce him. He's just gone. Because there's only one person in the world he can't stand in the presence of. And that's Jesus. Where Jesus is, the devil flees. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's my answer to that question, and I believe it's God's answer. Those five things that become those besetting sins in our life. If you and I are willing to humble ourselves and say, that's me, Lord. And we draw near to the Lord in his word. Don't try to do it any other way. Only in his word. And take it like a little child. And just begin to receive the instruction as a son to his daddy. As a daughter to her daddy. And all those five problems, the Lord will overcome in your life. Perhaps not in a moment, but he will lead you to overcome them step by step as an obedient child in his word. And you may not be perfect the first time you try. Often we're like these little children who are learning to walk. And daddy's saying, come. And we're. And what does daddy do? Oh, you dummy. Why don't you learn to walk once? Is that what a good parent does? No. Mama runs over and says, it's okay, sweetheart. It's okay. And maybe the little kid is wailing. Yeah, not you, Charlie. You, you know how to walk. But, but, but mama says, it's okay. Let's do this again. And Daddy says, let's do it again. Come. And that's how we learn to walk in truth in many of these areas in our life. So don't be discouraged if you tumble and fall and wail when you do and struggle to get back up. 
if you then, being evil, know how to be good parents to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, Brother Roy, I had my turn, now it's yours. Can you keep it this short? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. I bless you for our brother. Would you anoint him and encourage him? Oh, Lord, we come to your word. And Lord, we know it's awesome. Your presence is there. You wrote it. You preserved it. And now you alone can give it to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and make it alive, a living and powerful word. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Okay, can you guys hear me? I was smiling when... It came to the testimony part when you guys are asking for testimonies because it brought back so many memories. You know, last week, last Sunday, I was at a church, and it was a bit of an emotional church, and I was preaching, and there was about 10 people were crying while I preached, just weeping away. And um, I was trying to figure out, are they crying because it's a terrifying message, or I'm preaching too long, or is it because of what I was saying? But afterwards, there was a guy who came to me and he testified and he said, for the last 17 years, I could not believe in God. For the first time in 17 years, I can believe in God after this message. Then I got the next day, uh, I started getting emails of people who were testifying and saying how their life was changed to that message last Sunday. But what's, what made me smile in this message, and that was last Sunday, is Americans are, are weird. And what I mean by that is that uh, in South Africa, I'm just going to give you one example. There's, these, there's a nation of a few million people, and they love to testify. Um, many of their parents were drunk when they were born and they had fetal alcoholic syndrome, and they have this, they, they're just very open and want to testify, and they want attention in their thousands, these people at different ages. And so I preach it of these churches and what amazes me is the, is, is the testimony meeting will sometimes be three hours long. You preach, they look down, they're bored. But as soon as you say testimony meeting, everybody's eyes get up. They run to the front. There's a long line. And they come in there to testify about what God did in their lives. But what always amazes me is how many of them testify who were not in the meetings during the week. They only come to the testimony meeting <laughs> so that they can come to the front. Now, I appreciate that in these meetings that Brother Eli, me, and Brother um, Phil had, thank you to those of you who, who came and prayed with us. You know, in South Africa, when I go and preach in the prisons, I often sit down with people and they say, I say, have you done anything wrong? They say, yes, I murdered this person, I raped that person, I stole this. And then I go to America and I sit down with with white people in America, and I say, hey, have you got any sin in your life? And they'll say, no, and you don't ask questions like that. (laughs) Same in the testimony meetings sometimes. (laughs) But I noticed when, when of us were preaching here, there were some of you that were crying. Not many, but a few of them. I also wondered if I said something wrong. You know, am I preaching too long? 
Brother Eli, I understand, because he's a Mexican, that would make anybody cry. But I'd like to encourage you, if there's something that God has worked in your life, and thank you for those who've prayed with us, and thank you for those who had the courage at least to sit with us and say, this is what I'm struggling with in my life. But I've seen of you cry, and maybe it was because my sermon was so bad, or Brother Eli preached too long or short. But if God's speaking in your life, we've still got an afternoon. You don't need us. We're not Catholic priests. Come and speak to us if you want to. We don't bite. The last time I bit somebody, I was five years old. And the teacher at the pre-primary school, the preparatory school that, that saw me bite my friend, I bit him because he sat next to my best friend. And you do not sit next to my best friend. My teeth came out. I bit him. They took me to the headmaster, dragged me there. And I was in this office, a little boy. And it was a woman. You know, the people are supposed to be silent in church. She was the headmaster. And she showed me her big white teeth. And she said, if you ever bite someone ever again, I'm going to bite you. (laughs) And I can tell you, without being saved, I was saved many years later. I've never, ever bit anybody ever again. And if any of you have something that you're struggling with, I want to encourage you. Come. Speak to Brother Phil. Speak to someone else. If you're a girl and you want to speak to a boy, well, actually, Billy Graham had a good thing. You have, as long as your wife is with you or somebody else is with you, that's fine. Um, Just don't do it alone. Um, Just one thing before we uh, uh, pray. This is going to be a shorter sermon. Um, I prayed last night. I said, I don't know what to preach today. So I phoned my wife, and uh, my wife prayed for me, and then I got an idea of what to preach. So it's going to be interesting this morning. But when it comes to feelings, I've got a quick question. How many of you know the four or five types of consciences in the Bible? A conscience. Is that the correct pronunciation? A conscience. How many of you know the different types? Just put up your hand if you know one. This is like the testimony meeting. Nobody's hands go up. <laughs> put up your hand. If you know, just name one or two of them, just one of them. Noah, you know. By the way, this is my friend Noah. Okay, the one with the beard. Um, he came especially today. He's very kind. But just, just, just anybody, put up your hand. You really are not like those South Africans. Yes? Name one of them. A good conscience. There is a good conscience. That is true. There's a sound conscience, which is very similar. Anybody know the other types? Just, just put up your hand if you know any of them. Which is the one that's in Titus? Defiled, not guilty. Okay, you can have a guilty conscience. That's to a defiled conscience. Which one is in Timothy? Yes? Seared. Seared conscience. Which one is Corinthians and Romans, apart from the sound one? The bad one. It's a weak conscience. So when it comes to your feelings, one thing you have to understand as a Christian, I used to listen to preachers' tapes years back. You've heard me say about that. Many of the guys who had revival 60, 70 years back, they used to preach and they used to say that your conscience is always the voice of God as a Christian. That voice in you which gives you peace and tells you you're doing right or wrong, it's always God's voice. And that is not the truth. What is a weak conscience? Well... If you start to have lots of rules, 
I'm not serving God if I, if I have uh, warm clothes on on a cold day. I'm not serving God if I eat sweets. I've met people in South Africa in a cult of millions of people who believe it's sinful to love your wife. That my wife's body is sinful. They've got weak consciences. They've got a high standard. They, they don't eat certain meats, you name it. Um, then we have a defiled conscience that's very similar to that. That's the Jews who make things sinful. Warn to him that calleth good evil and evil good. Not just evil good, not just, hey, LGBTQ, gay marriage is right, calling evil good. It's saying it's wrong to eat sweets. Now, some sweets would be wrong, <laughs> I suppose. But ultimately speaking, you've got all these rules, and every time you break those rules, you feel like you've wronged God, and your conscience tells you that you're doing wrong. That's a weak conscience because of all your high little rules. What is a seared conscience? A seared conscience is when your conscience is linked. Actually, a seared conscience is like a brand that you put on the back of a cow. And you don't feel it anymore. Your conscience has come to the point. At first, I met a minister's son in South Africa. He said to me, Roy, he said, when I first started sleeping with my girlfriend, I felt bad. He said, but the more I sinned, the more I did what my parents said was wrong and the Bible says was wrong, the less I felt bad about it. And eventually I didn't feel anything. He had a seared conscience. He didn't feel anything bad. That's the false prophets who were teaching the rules forbidding to eat meats, abstaining from marriage that we find in the book of Timothy. So your conscience is, is literally linked to high standards or low standards. And God wants it to be linked to the word of God in context. And the more your conscience is linked to the word of God in context, because Satan can take the word of God out of context, the more you'll feel bad about the things you should feel bad about, and the more you'll feel good about the things you should feel good about. But the less it's connected to God's word, the more, the ho- even if you're a dedicated Christian, the less that your conscience is the voice of God. And when you feel good about murdering somebody... You know why it's wrong? Because the Bible says so. And when you feel bad about maybe feeling about getting married or drinking coffee uh, or eating some sweets or, or not going up in a mountain, my one friend was like this, his conscience got connected to chastising himself. You'd go on a mountain and, and he would literally wear no warm clothes because he thought that's what God wanted. And he only could get peace when he obeyed God. Well, you know why it's right? To go up a mountain with jersey on and and warm clothes, I'll tell you why, because the word of God allows it, (laughs) simply put. And that's how it works. Your conscience is not always the Holy Spirit. But now the devil wants something else. He wants you to link your feelings to your faith, as you've said. And so when you feel up, God's happy with me and I have faith. And when you feel down, obviously God's smile is not upon you. I'm not going to give you a hundred illustrations. I encourage you, if you're struggling with that, there's a little sermon online that I have called Faith Versus Feelings. It's helped a lot of people. But just one quick illustration. Charles Spurgeon said, you know the ark? There was one young child who was weeping for 40 minutes. I remember him coming to me after weeping for 40 minutes last year, and he said to me, Roy, I just don't know. I don't feel that I'm saved. I don't know how to feel I'm saved. I said, can I tell you something? 
This is what Charles Spurgeon said. You know the ark of God? You know Noah? That's Noah the beard. I mentioned him earlier for a reason. Um, Noah had an ark, and, and, and God put him in the ark, and God closed the door. But think about this. If you're in the ark and you feel good, you drank some nice coffee, your head is going good. Did the ark start to lift every time you feel good? No. And every time you had a little sickness or it smelled bad from the animals, maybe, I don't know, and he felt down, did, he start, did the ark start to sink? Did it go up and down with his feelings? You know, his feelings might have gone up, down every single day. And the reason he was safe was he was in the ark. The reason we are safe as Christians and can know we're going to heaven, though our feelings go up and down, is because we're in Christ Jesus. I don't have time to go into that, but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to study through church history and through the Bible. But let's get to the sermon. Can you open up your Bibles to Psalm 37? I was going to teach you a song this morning. We don't have time anymore. We got run away. We ran away with our feelings. There's one thing when it comes to the, the defiled conscience. If you make things and matter sinful... It might make you feel better than the liberal people. But that's why Jesus was not God to the early church many times, the cults. Because Jesus had a body, and a body is sinful, and so Jesus could not be God. If you throw away things for Bible in-context reasons, then you won't throw away things that are good that you don't have to throw away. Okay, I'm going to preach this morning... On old people. And this is a youth retreat, so that's the perfect topic, isn't it? And you're going to understand, I hope if you're sitting there and wondering, I'm a young person, I don't care about old people. I think that I can prophesy, even though I'm not a prophet, that by the end of the sermon, if you do not fall asleep, that you will understand why this sermon is very important for young people. By way of introduction, I hope you all turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. My little daughter is Ruth. Now, Ruth is God's punishment of me for what I did to my parents. Just to give you a quick example, Ruth was once in the car, and I suddenly heard screaming. But, oh, what screaming? My little three, four-year-old, she was there, and she, had a, she, she was screaming, Help! 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 And I thought she was hurt, her, her foot was in a stuck door, or someone, a knife had cut through or something, and my wife rushed to the back, and I got out of the car, and what's wrong with her? And there she was smiling. And I said, what happened? And my wife said, well, she had her finger in her ear, and she was petrified, and she was saying, help, 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 help. And my, my wife took the finger out of her ear, and she went, huh, huh. Thank you, mommy. <laughs> you talk about blaming others. My, my daughter took a glass and she sat in front of six of us. I remember sitting there in the room and she had this glass and she was looking around. She was four years old. She took the glass and she dropped it. Smash. And she smiled. She said it was Glenn. <laughs> she did that more than once in her life. I remember once she was very angry with my son. And so she went to mommy, my wife, and she said, you know, I'm feeling so down. And then she noticed my wife felt a little down for some reason. She said, what's wrong? 
And my wife wasn't down, down. She just couldn't find something. She said, I can't find my hair thingy, you know, on my head. I've looked for about an hour. I can't find it. And she was five years old. She looked at my mother. And she said, Mommy, your hair thingy will be my hair thingy. And your, your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Now, why did I give you all these illustrations? Well, later on in this sermon about old people, there's going to be a little girl, and I won't mention which of my three daughters it is, but I'll let you figure out which one. So let's pray. We're going to read Psalm 37, verse 25, and then quickly pray. Psalm 37, verse 25. Not the whole verse, just a little part of it. Actually, let me open up and get the whole verse. Psalm 37. Now, how many of you know that there are two psalms in the Bible specifically to do with old people? There's a few psalms that mention old people, but these psalms are by old people, and they're basically God's two psalms about old people. (laughs) One of them is Psalm 37. Which is the other one? Psalm 71. Psalm 37 is an old person, it's David, and he's, he's looking at people, he's been through life, he's got pretty old, and he's giving people advice, encouragement through life, little things they need to know about life as an old person teaching young persons. Now Psalm 71 is different, it's a person who's been accused in his old age, he feels like uh, he's weak, and he longs uh, for various things, but people are attacking him and telling him in his old age that God has forsaken him. That's a little bit different. One, an old person confidently giving advice to young people, and one, a person who's been attacked who needs encouragement as an old person. Um, So in Psalm 37, verse 25, we read these words. I have been young, this is David speaking, and now I am old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the Bible, the 66 books in which you teach us about people long dead, about young little children, about adults, about their failures, about old people. And thank you that for that, that which is insignificant to us many times, you love, you care for, and it's important to you. Little children, dear Father, came to Jesus and the disciples thought we shouldn't let these little children come. And yet they were precious to Jesus Christ. Uh, Beggars were on the side of the street and the people said, keep quiet. And you said, no, stand still. We need to listen to what these beggars need. On the cross, thieves who were despised, you listened to the one on your side who said, remember me. Remember me. You cared for the poor, you cared for the children, you cared for the beggars. And as we see through scripture, the old people in the, in the nursing homes called forget-me-not, you cared for them and you loved them and you were angry when they were wronged. So Father, we ask you to speak to us through old people as young people in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
Like I mentioned, some of you will sit here, it's a youth outreach, and you'll think, now, now why would you preach about old people at a youth outreach? And the simplest way to, to illustrate this before we get into it is that we very much like elephants. I don't know if you've studied nature. Some things in nature, the Bible says, don't be like these creatures. Don't be like the ostrich. Some animals, though, are closer to human beings than others. The dolphin is one of them. The elephant is the other. There's a camel-like creature. I watched a documentary once. And, and, and when this creature had a baby, the baby just plopped out while the mother was, was eating a grass away. And, and, and it left its child as it walked away. The child stood up and started eating grass too. <laughs> Phenomenal. We're not like that. I don't know if you've noticed. I remember when my wife had a baby. I don't want to go into details, but I'll tell you this. The first baby she had, I almost died. <laughs> I had no idea what was coming. Elephants are very much like human beings in many ways. And one of them, the, one of the ways elephants are like human beings is when elephants become teenagers. They're like dog years. They have different years to us. But when they get to their teenage years, if they do not have the discipline of adults and the influence of adults, they will be rebellious. We had this in South Africa. They wanted to repopulate an area with elephants. And so they got the elephants, the little child elephants, teenage elephants, and they shot them and made them go to sleep. They put them on trucks and they went across the country and they released them and these elephants woke up without their parents. Imagine being teenagers. No more daddy and mommy. Ooh, this is nice. And you know what they did? Typical teenagers, they went around and they destroyed all the bushes, all the trees, all the fruit, all their food. They were ruining the wildlife and animals started to die. And the human beings started to think, what are we going to do about these teenage elephants? True story, by the way. So some, they asked an expert, and the expert, I wish there would be experts would be like this with human beings, but anyway, said, you know what, how it works with elephants is they need older elephants to tell them not to do stuff. And so they brought in a, 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 about two or three mother and father elephants, older elephants, and they dropped them off. They put them to sleep. They bust them in. They dropped them off. The older elephants woke up and looked around them, and it's like, wait a minute. These teenagers are a little bit, hmm. And so they started to discipline those younger elephants. And very soon, the bushes started to grow again, and those little elephants were walking very nicely because the mommies and daddies were back. <laughs> Do you know that in the world when they measure morals, I don't like Time magazine so much. Uh, it's become very liberal. But, but when they measure morals, they don't, they don't take it by the Bible's measure of morals, but they still try to do it. They do statistics of the morals of different countries. So about 15 years back, there was a study across the different Western nations in Europe and Australia, New Zealand. And how they measure morals is they... They ask the young people, they do surveys, and they say, by the age of 13 or 12, how many times have you taken drugs on average? How many times have you slept with somebody else on average? How many times by the age of 13 has the average person done what they considered at that age inappropriate? Drugs, drink, and sleeping around. And so the worst country in Europe by far was 
England. And the worst country in the West was New Zealand, where they have packs of women going around in the night looking for men they've never known. And what they said of England was very interesting. They said, of all those countries in Europe, England is the country in Europe that is the greatest disconnect between older people and younger people. The younger people are totally on their own like those elephants. And it's not the young people's fault totally. Uh, and no social media is there and there's a lot of reasons, pressure to be on your own. The older people don't care about the younger people to a great degree, many of them. They're just going their own way. I remember at school there was a German guy and his father would pay for the parties where they got drunk. And his father would do evil with his son. In England, to a great degree, there's many people like that. Now let's turn to Psalm 71. Psalm 71 verse 9, we read these words. Cast me not off in time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. I will go, verse 16, in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. I don't know if you've realized it, but those are two of the most amazing verses in Scripture, especially the second one. It's an old guy. He longs for God as he gets weak. As he maybe walks with a walking stick. As he can't sleep as much at night. As diseases have more toll on his body, as he can't concentrate like he used to, as he's more stressed by life than the things he used to be able to handle, he can't handle anymore. He said, God, don't cast me off in my old age. And we're going to read later that other people said to him, God's forsaken you in your old age, in that song. That's what people do. That's what Christians do. They, when you're down, they, they, they tell you that God doesn't care about you anymore. But the other thing in verse 16, I don't know if you've noticed this, this is an old guy speaking and he says, I will make mention of thy righteousness and thine alone. Isn't that amazing? He has an old guy. Now imagine you're an old missionary, an old businessman or an old both or an old whatever. And you look back in your life and you say, there's, there's some boxes, like Eli said, you want to tick those boxes. I, when I was young, I was a good soccer player. I, I went to church and I was the youth leader. I, I sang songs. I, I preached. I, I made money in my business. I did all these different things. And you know, when I look back, I can say these things kind of indicate that I've been successful in life. It's who I am. He has an old guy, and he looks back, and he doesn't mention one house he built. He doesn't mention one business that, that he created. He doesn't mention one thing that he did for the Lord. No money he gave to the temple, nothing. The only thing he can see in his old age is your righteousness, God. That's all I cling to. What a wonderful example. <laughs> but you know something that's interesting? In Proverbs 16, verse 31, this is an old guy who followed God. But in Proverbs 16, verse 31, we see that there's a condition to this being precious. It says the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. 
There are kings who started right like Solomon. 1 Kings 11 verse 4. In their old age, it didn't turn out too good. And we can argue about whether they repented afterwards, but often in the old age, they turned from God. Psalm 71 verse 11. I mentioned to you, same chapter. People said, God's forsaken you. Saying, God has forsaken him. Persecute and take him, for there's none to deliver him, this old dude that used to be such a warrior for God. Psalm 71 verse 18. The old guy looks up to God and he says, God, I'm old. I'm gray-headed. Oh God, forsake me not. They say you've forsaken me, but God, please don't forsake you me. And, I, and there's a purpose, God. Until I've shown thy strength unto this generation and thy power unto the one that is to come, everyone that is to come. You see, he has an old guy. And people say in his old age, you're forsaken of God. He said, no, God, don't forsake me. I want to show this younger generation the power of God. I've met some old people with their eyes dimming. Love God. They can hardly preach, but they sit there and they pray, and I've heard them pray, God, I long for this younger generation to see the power of God. So often sitting in a meeting, I've met young people who for 16 years they've been in Baptist churches and they've listened to good messages every Sunday. And then at 16 years of age, they sit in a meeting and, and, and there's preaching. And they said, for the first time in my life, from my head to my toes, I realized that God was there. For the first time in my life, I realized from my head to my toe that behind the pulpit was not just a man uh, or a book. It was God who made heaven and earth that was speaking to me. And I'd never experienced that before. For 16 years, I stood, sat in a church. I heard good messages, but God never spoke to my soul. I remember when I was a youngster, we came to conferences. And at those conferences, the old people would pray through the nights. And I was unsaved, but I sat there in those meetings, and God came so clearly in those meetings. Uh, it, it didn't immediately make me saved or anything like that, but I could not deny. Holy, holy, holy. That it wasn't just a preacher standing up there, that God was present. God had taken over. And even in my unsaved days, even if I rebelled against God and didn't seek Him and didn't get saved, there was no denying that God was real because the old people were seeking God through the night. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever been to an old... Not, 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 how many of you preach in orphanages? Some of you might have terrifying parents and horrible, evil grandparents. That's possible. But there are people out there who actually have lovely grandparents and lovely parents. Before 1914, only 1 in 25 people divorced. Now that's over 50%. There was more people who had grandparents in the old days. Have you ever asked someone, an older person who had a stable family, a grandmother, 
Do you miss your grandparents? I decided once to go across America and go to old people and sit down with them, grandparents, because they always talk about their grandkids. Isn't that right? And most people don't realize they were once small and they had grandparents that they loved. Those grand, their parents died, their grandparents died, and they still miss them, even though they're grannies. We don't think about that for some reason. I hardly hear anybody ever ask somebody that question. So I went around and asked quite a few people. I said, do you miss your granny and grandpa? Can you tell me stories about them? And I remember in Pennsylvania, for instance, and there was many cases like this. This one lady, she just sat there and she said, I miss, she was in her 80s, she said, I miss my granny. I'm like, oops. <laughs> she started to cry and tell stories about when she was a little child and how wonderful her granny and grandpa was. Some of them will say, I didn't like my granny, I didn't know my granny, but so many of them cry when they just ask that question. But I've never heard, I knew that person for years, I never heard that person talk about their granny and grandpa, except if they were writing a book about the family. Never heard them talk about their granny and grandpa until they were asked, because to them, they're not important in life, and the little children, the grandchildren are the only ones who are important. They love the grandchildren. And that's what we read in the Bible, Proverbs 17, verse 6. Open up your Bibles to Proverbs 17, verse 6. It says there that children's children are the crown of old men and the glory of children are their fathers. Three generations. Old people look down at children and when they've got very little left in life, they get so happy when they see little children. And that we kind of understand. Joseph was old. It says in Genesis 48 verse 9, 10, it says, now the eyes of Israel, that, that Jacob, were dim for age, and he could not see. He was blind. But what did they do to them? They brought him his grandchildren. You know what he did to his grandchildren? It says he kissed them. It says he embraced them. He hugged them. He couldn't see, but those, the, glory, the glory of the old man was there. And he had these little children they brought to him. And he was hugging them. And he was kissing them. I don't think they realized what that meant to him. I remember my grandfather, when it came to his death, when he died of cancer in South Africa. He used to be a very strong man when he was younger. But when, I'll come to this a little bit later. But when he was dying... He got so thin from the cancer in his body that his eyes were popping out. <laughs> and he was walking like this in the last two months before he died. And my little children were there. And there was a lake at the bottom. And there were fish in the lake. And my grandfather, as he would walk in the pain, knowing that he was going to die soon, he would be, every day, he'd be waiting there because he knew there was a time of day when I was visiting him for a few months before he died. A time of day, I would let him take my little children down to the lake. And he would be waiting. And then they'd come. And he was ready. And he walked slowly, slowly down the hill, about 400 yards down to the little lake. 
I remember he had those bread pieces. He would give it to my children. I remember him throwing it with them. I remember seeing his face. There was a joy. He filled his eyes and his little face that was wrinkled and dying because he was with little children that were his great-grandchildren. It meant so much to him before he died. You know, the Bible talks about a lot of old people. I'm not going to mention all of them. That would be a long study. But Genesis 24, verse 1, we read of Abraham. And we read these words. Abraham was old, and he was well stricken in years. Joshua, in the Bible, and this is very important, extremely important when it comes to judging people, by the way, in the old age. There's something that a lot of American Christians don't understand. It's right in the Bible. But I've seen them judge old people. I've seen them judge, especially old preachers and old people. In the Bible, God just puts it there. You know, there were two people, Joshua and Caleb, you know this, that, that were allowed to live. They were over the age of 20, am I right? The rest of them over the age of 20 died. But Caleb and Joshua, because they believed in God when it came to the, uh, sorry, um, to the giants that were in Hebron, because they believed in God, God said, these two are going to go into Canaan. And so everybody else died after 40 years, and yes, these two old dudes and all these young guys. And I'd love to talk about Caleb for a long time, because what he did at Hebron, looking back in the years, is absolutely amazing. But we don't have time right now. But I'll tell you this. Have you noticed something that there was a big difference between Joshua and Caleb? Joshua, the Bible says in, in jo Joshua 13 verse 1, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, you know, God doesn't say, hey, you look young. <laughs> I like it. There's a lot of people in my family, my, my grandparents and others, if I say to them, you look young, and I mean it, they smile. No, God just says, listen, dude, um, it's simple. You old, the Lord said to him, you're old and stricken in years, and there's much land to be possessed. But what is Caleb like at about the same time? One chapter later, Joshua 14, verse 10, after Joshua said, I'm stricken, I'm old and stricken in years, Caleb says, you know, I'm 80, how old am I? I'm 85 years old, four score and five. I'm 85 years old, but guess what? Behold, the Lord has kept me alive 45 years. And um, it goes on and says uh, a few little things like that. And then verse 11, as yet I am as strong this day uh, as I was on the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so my strength is now for war, both to go out and to come in. So Joshua, before Caleb says that, says I'm stricken and old. Then Caleb says these words a chapter later and then on. A few chapters later, Joshua says the same words. I'm old and stricken in age. Have you noticed something? Here's a classic example. Some people are 70 years old. And they're old. Some people are 70 years old and they're young. Now let me tell you something, because I've seen Americans judge like you cannot believe when it comes to old preachers. It's not 
how spiritual you are. That they are an old 70 or old 80 versus a young 80 and a young 70. Young 80 or old 80. The people, I, I hear these Americans say it. Look, that person, when he got to 80 years old, he could handle any stress. He could handle any storm. He could handle anything that people put against him. And he could just handle it. But look at that guy. The truth came out. I've heard these words. The truth came out. In his old age, look what his heart is really like. <laughs> he can't handle it. He's obviously unspiritual. What idiots who happen to be Americans Some of the godliest people I've ever met in my entire life, I remember them getting Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. They used to pray through the nights. God used them in power. And then I'd see them, I'd look at them, and they couldn't handle things. My granny was one of them. She, on my, mother, my father's side, she was such a gentlewoman. She could handle anything that came in her body. But when she started, before she got Alzheimer's, I remember they stole... $2,000 from her bank account and she was sitting there and I remember when she was younger you could steal $100,000 it wouldn't mean anything to her she would just go and sort it out with the police but in this case she was sitting there and she said but they've stolen my money and I don't know what to do and, 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 and it just feels like they've invaded my privacy and she in her old age could not handle what she handled when she was younger and it did not make her unspiritual oh ye the judge I remember in South Africa, and I remember I mentioned my little daughter, Ruth. Uh, I've given you a clue as to which one this is. I won't tell you, but anyway. I was in the car driving about 23 hours with my wife through the mountains. I was driving, and it was pouring with rain. There was these big walls on the side of the highway. And I saw as it poured with rain, it was cold. This old 90, it looked like something, the old lady with... It was thin, like literally this thin leg. She was walking in the rain in the dark. And I couldn't stop because, because there were so many cars and so little space as she walked in the cold through the rain. She was going to, the next exit was so many miles ahead. I knew that she was going to be a few hours in the cold walking to wherever she was walking. This old lady with her little legs. And I started my heart to weep. And then I started to think about two hours later I was driving And I got a phone call from two old missionaries. And they said to me that all their pension had been stolen. Fifty years they'd preached. Fifty years God had used them. And now they had nothing, not a house, not a penny. And as I was thinking about this in my head, and as, as I was thinking of that woman that was walking in her old age in the rain, and cold, I started to cry. I was just weeping and broken over these old people. I was weeping before God. And my wife looks at me and she thinks, what's wrong with this man? She wasn't judging me. She was just wondering. And randomly, out of nowhere, I'm driving the car and I'm just crying like a little baby. Now, at this point, my daughter is looking and again, I won't tell you which daughter, but she looks and she says, Mommy, Mommy, stop it. My wife looks, her husband's crying, her daughter is judging her. And my daughter said, 
stop pinching daddy. <laughs> My poor wife, mad husband, judgmental daughter. Anyway, she did ask me, Roy, why are you crying? It's these old people. <laughs> you know how God hates it? Open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 25. God hates it when those who are weak, when those who are old, when those who are derelict, those who are not as strong as others, when we just take advantage of them. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come out of Egypt. What did Amalek do? He met you by the way. He smote the hindmost of you. Even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. Who's the who's the hindmost? Who's the feeble? Who's the weary? It's people who have cripples, probably little children and old people. Did God just say, well, you know, there's a million more people, so it doesn't really matter. Um, it's, it's sad that they did that. You should punish them, but it's not that great. No, God looked down on these people who went to the weak ones and they hurt them. Oh, we can't get at the soldiers there, but let's get these old people and these little children and these sick people. And God said, and God's given you rest from all the enemies round about, about. Blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You're not going to forget this. Kill every one. Because that's how God looks upon people. Play with the feeble. You know, in South Africa, we have the highest rape rate of any country in the world, along with India and Mexico, probably. I don't want in front of you to give details, because there's young people. Yeah, obviously I wouldn't anyway, but I will say this. They gang rape babies. Because they think it will cure them of AIDS. A hundred and something year old woman get in the same way. I don't want to mention the word twice. Down the road from where we live, a hundred and seven year old lady, she just turned a hundred and seven. Young man went through the window, went up the door, he found this old lady and said, I'm going to do evil to you. Always for a selfish reason. The flesh always has a selfish reason. It will cure me of AIDS. I'm more powerful. I can do what I want. I want to get rid of somebody. Oh, the flesh is stupid. How many of you know the song? In Shady Green Pastures. I'm sure you do. Beautiful song. It was written by G.A. Young. And G.A. Young was a pastor. And you know, some of you might even know the story. But G.A. Young was a pastor, and he saved for years. In those days, they didn't have Social Security and, and um, uh, uh, green <laughs> food stamps and stupid stuff like that. Um, <laughs> the, if you were poor, you starved, okay, <laughs> many times. And it was the churches that would help you or wouldn't help you. But he was the pastor of the church. And so he had a plot of land, and he saved for 20 years um, into his old age to be able to build a house. And eventually he took his money, and he built a house. And he wanted that to be there for his wife when he died. And then his wife was excited and he was excited. They moved into the house. When I die, my wife is going to have a house. 
And while he went out to preach again, some hooligans came, American hooligans, and <laughs> burnt down his house. He never got money again to build that house. They landed up in a poor house. He died. His wife was in a poor house. But they'll give you a little bit of food every day and part of a room. And he wrote, after they burnt down that house, he wrote, in shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the waters cool flow, bathe the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. And then these words, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. There's a lady in South Africa. Her name was Miss Dobby. I heard about her when when I was at Bible college, and she was in her young 90s. She'd never got married, but for many years she looked after her father, who was sickly, a great preacher. She used to pray for about nine, ten hours a day. I've never met a woman. I remember going to her in this little house, a poor lady, and I came in there. My dad told me about it. This is the famous Miss Dobby. She is so in touch with God. And I would come in there, and you would literally, I don't, I don't like charismatic experiences or weird things, but you'd come into her house and you'd sense the presence of God just by walking in there. She used to play old hymns on the piano. I have never in my life experienced someone play hymns and God's presence was there even when you weren't singing the words. She would weep before God on her knees in her 90s, calling out. She had a map on the wall and missionaries all over the world. Through the night, she would call out to God for God to save souls. And then one day, she was very good to me. We don't have time to talk about it all, but she had a kettle. And she took this kettle of boiling water and she fainted. And the, the, the boiling water flowed through her body and all over her body. And she woke up and her skin was off in her old age. And they rushed her to hospital. And there in hospital, she was there for months with no skin, most of her body. She was praising God for some reason. <laughs> but this nurse came to her, an African nurse, and she said, Do you know my Jesus? And the nurse said, No, I don't. Okay, I'm praying for you. The next day, the nurse came back again, and she said, Do you know my Jesus? And the nurse said, I don't know your Jesus. The third day, she said, do you know my Jesus? <laughs> and the nurse said, I don't know your Jesus. And I think it was the fourth day, that nurse came in there and she was bursting with joy. She said, if Jesus is like you, I thought to myself, I want to know this Jesus. And last night, I sought your Jesus and I found your Jesus. But you know, many years later, she got Alzheimer's. I remember her finding her, and she didn't know who I was or who my dad was. You know, when my granny got Alzheimer's, it was quite funny. I would go to visit her, and, and she, would, um, she would introduce me to her friends, and she would say, this is my nephew, but I'm his grandmother. <laughs> Never could figure that one out. <laughs> 
I've mentioned before that old people can sometimes not handle stress. Jacob in the Bible, when he was younger, he was strong enough to deceive people. He was so terrible. When he was older, he said, you know, I've lost Jacob. I've lost my wife, Rachel, earlier. You're going to send me down to the grave if my son Benjamin is lost to me. He couldn't handle what he could handle when he was younger. It was very obvious. One of the most obvious progressions in the Bible when it comes to old people is, the, is David. I don't know if you've noticed this. I mean, I'm sure you have. What was he like when he was young? Oh, let's turn to 1 Samuel 16 verse 18. Open up your Bibles. 1 Samuel 16 verse 18. He was described before Saul in this way as a young man. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I'm going to skip some parts. He's a mighty, valiant man. He's strong. He's a man of war. He goes on to say he's a comely person, and God is with him. That's when David was young. He killed Goliath. A little bit onwards in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, sorry, um, I don't know if it is chapter 11, actually. Um, not chapter 11, sorry, onwards, I haven't got the chapter there, but we read that it came to pass as the year was expired at the end when the kings go forth to battle. Jacob sent out Job, he went with him. Sorry, no, wait, sorry, he didn't go with him. He chose not to go forth, and that was the time he was strong enough to go to battle, but he chose not to go to battle, and he fell into sin with Bathsheba. But then later on, David, in 2 Samuel 21 was older, but not very old, but older and weaker and still able to hold a sword. And so he went out to battle and he got weak and he almost got killed and he was saved by his mighty men. So yeah, we have a guy who's mighty. He makes some bad choices. He's getting older. He's not as strong as he used to be. And then eventually he's not allowed to go to war anymore. And at the, in his old age, we read in 1 Kings 1 verse 1, David was old and stricken in years. They covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. I think that might be too good. Anyway, one king. Note, I, am, I was once strong, but I'm now old. I was once young, but I'm now old. Here's the David that killed Goliath, and he needs another woman to lie by his side. To give him heat. Did that make him unspiritual? No. I'd like to quickly mention my grandfather just a little bit more about that before we come to the end of the sermon. I want to end the sermon before each of you reach the age of 100. When my grandfather, Yanni, my other grandfather died before I was born of a heart attack, but when my grandfather, Yanni LaRue, was in his 60s, and I was a little boy. I remember coming, and there was this tree. And I tried to pick up this tree, and I couldn't. I sit down there, and I was like, ah, 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 ah. And my grandfather, he always had his chest out. He came out there, and he looked at me in his 60s. And he knelt down, and he picked up this tree just like that. Ah, yeah. And I was like, Grandpa, you strong. It was amazing. My grandfather used to preach across the country. 
He preached in little mud churches and in large conferences. And he was one of the most amazing preachers out there. He was a farmer. He used to sit in his tractor as he, as he would listen, uh, as he would try and figure out in his head sermons. He woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning to have a quiet time. He got to bed at 10 o'clock. He had multiple quiet times every day. He sought God. He would witness to souls all over. He would use his legs and his arms and his hands and his eyes to tell people about Jesus Christ. Then my father, my grandfather had a bypass, which many of you probably had. And I remember him coming out of there and he couldn't speak as well as he used to. There was two things that started going down, just as in the life of David. Number one, his finances went down on the one side. And the other side, his health went down as he got older. He had this quadruple bypass. And, and I remember him preaching afterwards. He was struggling to breathe. And he would stand there in his old age, uh, late 70s. It wasn't too old, by the way, but late 70s. And as he preached, he struggled between words. And I remember when I was younger how he would preach and and people would sit there because he was so captivating and so brilliant as a preacher. And now he would go, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I looked around me and I saw some young people, some middle-aged people looking at him and saying, oh, this guy can't preach. I heard them say those words. This guy can't preach. If I was non-resistance, I felt like smacking someone that day. What right did they to do that? My grandfather was a rich farmer. He used to build conference centers for Christians. He was to support uh, camps and youth retreats and, 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 and all these different things. Missionaries across the world. He, was, he had three large farms, hundreds of thousands of citrus trees, millions of dollars going through his bank account every year. And then there was a company in America called Monsanto. And Monsanto said through there in the 1990s, they had this thing called Sting. And it said you can... Any tree over the age of five you can spray. And he sprayed every second tree and every second tree died. And then he started to go bankrupt and he lost one farm and he lost the next farm. And eventually he came to the stage where he was in a little house they gave him, basically loaned to him out of empathy. They cut off the electricity. They cut off the telephone. His car broke down. He didn't have a car. And I remember him walking to the neighbors and begging for food. He had cancer in this time. And he went to hospital and they, they ripped out two-thirds of his stomach. This was the cancer he died of eventually. And I remember him going through so much pain. And my grandfather was amazing. When the bank was phoning to take away his farm, I remember looking at him and there was a visitor I'd never seen before and with a smiley face, he would be telling that person about Jesus Christ. When he, had, he was preaching once and he had a stroke and as he was preaching to 300 people, the stroke came into his mind and we had to get a taxi to get him to hospital. And I remember him a few hours later when the taxi came across the country, he was telling the taxi driver, trying to tell him about Jesus he was being rushed off to hospital. My grandmother was the same. When she had her spinal cancer, 
She was in hospital and she was in a coma and semi-coma. And as she was in that coma, the only word she said again and again was, Doctor, Doctor, are you saved? Doctor, are you you saved? Doctor, are you saved? Eventually my grandfather, when they took out his stomach, he was in hospital. And he heard the person next to him in bed say to the doctor, am I going to be a right doctor? And the doctor said, sure, you're going to live. And as he walked away, the nurse said to that doctor, doctor, you lied to him. He's going to die. And the doctor said, it's better he just dies than he knows he's going to die and struggle. And that nurse said, no, I'm going back to him. So the nurse went back to this bed and this man next to my, 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 my grandfather was sitting there. And, and, and she said, I want to tell you the truth. The doctor lied to you. You're going to die. And that man in that bed, my grandfather said, he screamed like I've never heard a man scream. He said, no, 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 I'm not ready to die. I, I can't meet with God. I'm not ready to meet with God. Please help me. And that nurse, my grandfather, said he was in such pain from his operation, he couldn't say one word. He always took it for granted when you can speak to a soul about Jesus. But he said there, as he was in his bed, he could not tell him the answer that he had in his heart about Jesus Christ dying for his sins. But he was so glad the nurse came with the Bible. But this nurse didn't know the gospel. She went somewhere in, in, in Leviticus or Chronicles and said, He begat, he begat, he begat. And that man listened, and after he listened to this, he said, But is, is that all? That hasn't told me anything. I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to die. And he screamed, and my grandfather was sitting there, I know the answer, but I can't speak because I'm in such pain from the stomach that's ripped out of me. My grandfather went home. A family member, the one that went mad that I mentioned, Yesterday, he went and looked after him through the night. For a few days, he couldn't speak. And he came out. My grandfather's a gentleman, but he came out half naked. He was so in pain and writhing. He would be scratching himself after the operation. And he wouldn't know what to do. And eventually, he got back to a little bit of normality. And the first time, he had enough strength to speak. He got everybody together he could. A whole little, my family member as well. And he said, I've been waiting for this moment. I've been waiting for this moment. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. You've got to be ready when you die. He was strong when he was young. He got weaker when he got cancer. He got even weaker after that when he had stomach cancer. And then there came two years later a time when he was walking around like this. And eventually he was on his bed. We were there when he died. And I remember my grandfather being in the bed the day before he was singing hymns. And he asked me, he said, Roy, you know this one sports team? Did we win? <laughs> don't know what that meant. <laughs> he loved his springbok team. <laughs> Rugby. So yeah, there's a guy dying the day before he dies, singing hymns for the day and asking about his rugby team. Very weird. But anyway, I remember the day he died. The guy who picked up the tree, he was thin in his bed and he was just breathing. The nurses said it's the end. He would breathe and there'd be three minutes of nothing and then he'd breathe and there'd be a few minutes of nothing and eventually he died. I remember... 
I remember the next year I was traveling through the mountains, another 20-something hour trip, and I was coming back to the farm area, and I was coming back to see my granny before she died. And I started to weep and weep and weep for about half an hour. And my wife was looking at me. My daughter didn't say anything at that stage that I know of. But my wife was looking at me. She said, why are you crying? She said, I said, it's because it's the first time I'm going to where my grandfather was and he's not there anymore. And then it was so precious to me, that verse that I mentioned yesterday in Deuteronomy, leaning on the everlasting arms. The realization, I can't phone my grandfather. I can't ask him to pray for me. I can't visit him. But Jesus is still there. I'd like us to open up our Bibles. We're coming to the very end now. One more illustration. Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 8. I know it's not the same Greek word, but a lot of people say Jesus doesn't understand old people because he died at a young age. In English, not in Hebrew, that's different. There's different words. It says we are stricken with old age. You know what the English word in, in Isaiah talked of Jesus dying on the cross? It says these words. Verse 4. He's born our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. When you get old one day, young guys, that's going to happen. You know the answer? It's Isaiah 46, verse 4. Even to your old age, I am he. Even to your hoary hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry. I will deliver you. When someone says to you, God has forsaken you, because your body is going down as a young person or as an old person, God says, I'm going to carry you in your old age. You know, when my daddy died, I told you yesterday, I longed to hold my daddy's hand like he held me when I was a little child. But my daddy died alone in a hospital. My grandmother almost died alone. But they were never alone. God was carrying them. God was there. There's an old song, Granddad. How many of you know this song? Grandma, lovely that's what we all think of you. Granddad, grandma, lovely. That's what we all think of you. It's a beautiful song. I end off with this illustration. There was an old lady. True story. In hospital. She was dying. And when she was dying... The doctor, walking away from her, whispered to the nurse. The nurse said, is she dying? And the doctor whispered back, she's sinking fast. And that old lady who was dying in the next hour or so, she said, doctor. He said, yes, I heard you. Doctor, you're totally wrong. I'm not sinking. I may be dying, but I'm not sinking. And the doctor said, I'm sorry that I spoke so loud. She said, no, it's fine. I just want to tell you something, doctor. I'm on a rock. 
His name is Jesus. <laughs> and you can't sink through a rock. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this youth outreach. I'm so excited that I met Eli for the first time. And boy, what a exciting Mexican he is. <laughs> thank you that Jesus is in him. Thank you for Brother Phil, Lord. None of us are perfect. Many of us can look back and say of things that we did wrong in the past. All of us, dear Father. But thank you for his love for God now. I can look back in my life and say, hey, there, there, there. But thank you, love, for your mercy upon me. I would like to thank you, dear Father, for those young people who have prayed with us. I want to thank you for those who were crying in the meetings. And I don't know what they're going through. Maybe they need encouragement. Maybe they thought the message was too long. Maybe, maybe you were speaking to them in some way, dear Father, something that they needed. But please, dear Father, will they not work And those who need assurance of salvation to know that their assurance is Jesus Christ. When their feelings go up, when their feelings go down, it's the boat that they in Jesus that makes them safe in the floods. Father, those of you here who are Christians but are struggling with other things or should struggle if they knew it was wrong, work through your Holy Spirit, dear Father. Don't let them go. Let them know that this God is real until they come to a place of surrender. And Father, for every single one of us, just concerning this last message, help us to love the weak as you love the weak. And when we get old, or when you get sick as a young person, which is the same thing, your body falling apart if you're not a young old person, then Father, I ask thee to encourage them. And when people say, and Satan whispers, God's forsaken you in your sickness or your old age, Father, that you would remind them, in your old age, I will carry you. I'm not like men. I love you. I will wipe out an entire nation that hurts the weak, the old, the children. And I pray this, dear Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Roy, for sharing with us again. It was a blessing to hear the Word of God. You know, I've, I've uh, sat through hundreds and hundreds of preaching meetings, thousands, I'm sure, in my uh, nearly 45 years. I don't think I've uh, ever heard a preacher that has so many real-life illustrations to back up what he's saying about what God has done, scriptural principle or uh, a story in, in the Bible and saying, okay, here's how I saw it work out in real life. So that's, that's been a blessing uh, to hear that from you, Roy, and hear how uh, God has worked in 
in your life and your family, extended family, friends, um, all these stories. I, I guess I guess they're around. I, I I believe God works in America too, but I'm not I'm not sure. It's it sounds like South Africa might be uh, where God uh, illustrates His word more than anywhere else. I don't know. But thank you for uh, being faithful and sharing God's word. We do have a meal that is prepared. I believe we have plenty, so everybody please stay and enjoy that meal, enjoy that time of fellowship. Uh, we're going to be here. We don't, we don't have anything scheduled as far as uh, the young people in our, our youth retreat, but it's, there'll be activities, there'll be people here throughout the afternoon. Um, so everybody is welcome to stay really as long as you'd like and enjoy that time of fellowship and activities and, and food. Uh, this evening for the young people and their families, we'll have a uh, closing event, if you will, at the Schroeder home just north of Heroways that uh, you'll be invited to. Uh, we'll post the address on our uh, WhatsApp channel. So if you're on that, uh, you'll see it. If you're not, I guess you'll get left behind. So now we'll, we'll make sure you get there, but uh, you're welcome to, once again, if you're not on there, you can ask to be added to that. Are there any other announcements, Phil, we need to make in closing regarding youth retreat or anything? Once again, thank you all for being here. Let's all rise if you're able, and we'll have a... Uh, Closing prayer and a blessing on our noon meal. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together here this morning, this weekend. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word and how it's been so clear that your word is alive. It's not just a dead book. It's not just something to read. It's something that is alive and we can see it at work in our generation today and in previous generations. I thank you that those examples are abundantly clear. And I pray that your word would continue to work in our lives for our benefit and also for the benefit of those future generations as well. I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for each person here. I pray that you would continue to minister to each one. I pray that you would bless our time of fellowship here this afternoon. Thank you for the food that's been provided for us. And, Father, we just pray your blessing on it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.